All right, good morning and welcome to uh, Plum Creek Chapel. Want to uh, thank you all for coming out this morning and lots of, uh, lots of good stuff planned for this morning. I'm really, it's, this is one of those Sundays, I'll just be honest with you, where I wish I was uh, doing the sermon before the Bible study because I'm so excited about what we're going to be talking about in our study through Acts today. Uh, so I hope you'll stick around for our uh, worship service there. Those of you joining by live stream, remember the live stream uh, for the service usually starts about 10.30, give or take five minutes, mountain time. And uh, that's because we're only able to live stream the message, not the whole service with our technology here. But uh, really excited about what we're going to be looking at uh, in Acts. One of, uh, one of really my favorite and just so rich passages there in Acts chapter 12. So much we can learn from that. But that's... Uh, that's uh, at the 10 o'clock hour, but let's go ahead and start uh, with some announcements this morning before we continue to look at uh, our uh, What Lies Ahead series. So uh, if you were not here last week for our Sedalia God and Country Day celebration, you missed a wonderful time, and that message, a very important message, Why America Needs the Church, is still posted uh, both at the Plum Creek Chapel website as well as the uh, notbyworks.org uh, website, so I encourage you to check that out. And then I had a really special podcast on Tuesday, our, my standing uh, appearance on the uh, Christian Underground News Network every Tuesday morning, and this week we talked about how should Christians respond to grief, and uh, really, really enjoyed that discussion, looked at a lot of scripture, and kind of tried to put in context the distinction between uh, unbelievers when they experience grief and believers. And so I hope you'll check that out. Uh, it's still uh, posted. And then, uh, by the way, speaking of Tuesday morning podcast, just this morning, actually late last night, but I got the response this morning, I uh, suggested our topic uh, for next Tuesday uh, to Curtis, who's the director of Christian Underground News Network. And Tuesday we're going to be talking about what does God know and when does he know it? And uh, I know that, of course, we know that God knows everything, right? So you think, well, that's going to be a pretty short podcast. God knows everything. Thanks for joining us, you know. Um, but actually, there are a number of scripture passages that speak specifically about things that God knows. Now, it, the Bible tells us he knows everything, but it begs the question, why does God in his self-revelation to mankind spell out certain things that he, that he knows, that he wants us to know that he knows? And I think it really speaks to uh, the intimacy of our relationship with our Creator. Uh, it speaks to uh, his imminence, not imminence, imminence, meaning God is here, God is among us, we, he's approachable, uh, as opposed to his transcendence, meaning he's out there above us and untouchable. And so I think it'll be encouraging. It encouraged me as I thought about it and did some preliminary work uh, last night on that. And then I want to continue to remind you that if you're not already bookmarked or subscribed to Harbinger's Daily, you need to do so. It's a fantastic repository of great conservative uh, scholarship and politically conservative, relig you know, uh, theologically conservative, uh, all kinds of great uh, Bible teachers and other resources. And recently, we, we've kind of been connected to them uh, for a number of, well, for over a year, but recently they uh, were gracious enough to give Not By Works its own uh, uh, landing page there. And so a lot of our stuff is reposted there, uh, but highly recommend Harbinger's Daily. And then don't forget, midweek on Wednesdays, we're doing What is Calvinism? We've had six parts in this series so far. Don't forget the next two Wednesdays, we will not be 
continuing this series because I'll be out of town. Appreciate your prayers as we head up to the Pacific Northwest for uh, two conferences up there, one in Idaho and one in uh, Washington. But uh, we've got some great substitutes lined up to speak for our midweek Bible study. So we will have midweek Bible study. It just won't be live streamed and it won't be the Calvinism series. Uh, we will resume that on the 27th. Let's see, is that right? Yeah, the 27th. Uh, so looking forward to that, but it gives you a couple weeks to catch up. If you've missed a few uh, of those, you can go back and, and watch those. So uh, today we are st uh, moving forward with our uh, discussion of the eternal state. And as I talked about last week, there are some preliminary matters in Scripture that we need to address before we can get into what does the Bible say about the eternal state. And so to put this in perspective, remember uh, in God's plan of the ages, there was uh, once upon a time, if you want to put it that way, God spoke the world into existence. And God, the eternal creator of the universe who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, chose to create time, space, and matter. And that's why his self-revelation to mankind which came along some 2,500 years after he actually created the earth. So God created the earth. Time started ticking. 2,500 years later, through the pen of Moses, he began to reveal to us how all of that happened in the written word. And the Bible, his self-revelation, begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And right there in Genesis 1.1, we see the reference to time, space, and matter. In the beginning, the beginning of what? Begin, the word beginning, by its very definition, means time. Uh, if you didn't have time, you couldn't have a beginning, or an end for that matter. So in the beginning, that's time, God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter, physical matter. And so we now live in this created realm, uh, which God created about 6,000 years ago. But there will come a time kind of hard to, to speak without referencing time, right? Because that's the world we live in. But there will come a time when there will be no time, right? When time shall be no more. And that is what the Bible refers to as the new heavens and the new earth. Theologically, we call that the eternal state. Eternal meaning no end, no beginning and no end, right? Eternal doesn't just mean everlasting. It means no beginning, no end. So once God's plan of the ages has come to fulfillment... God will destroy, and we're going to talk about that this morning, this sin-stricken earth. And yes, indeed, the earth itself is under the curse of sin, not just mankind. And he will recreate it in sinless perfection without time as we shall know it. And at that point, only believers will inhabit eternity. Uh, we will inhabit eternity in our glorified bodies. Remember Paul said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So we have to have our glorified bodies in the eternal kingdom. And there will be no night and no uh, uh, sea and no sorrow and all those things. And we'll get to that as we look at some passages uh, in the coming weeks about the eternal state. Uh, but there are still some things that have to take place before we get to that eternal state. So if you look at our timeline, let me put one up that doesn't have the kingdom highlighted there. So over here uh, on the far right, uh, you can see uh, in purple there the messianic kingdom. And Christ comes back. Obviously, this is not drawn to scale. 
the church age on here, it's just a very small portion of the chart, but so far it's been 2,000 years of human history. Uh, by contrast, the seven-year tribulation, which the Bible talks about in many passages, Jesus talked about it in the Gospels, Daniel, of course, is the one who God gave the prophecy to, uh, the book of Revelation talks about it, that seven-year period, uh, and by the way, it always amazes me when people uh, struggle with taking that seven years literally. It's just beyond me why that's even an issue. Uh, it's a 490-year prophecy. That's plain enough from Daniel 9. The first 483 years were fulfilled literally to the day. And the final seven years will be fulfilled literally. And the Bible even speaks of it in terms of the number of days. So you have to just literally spiritualize all of that and, and, and unnecessarily turn it into some mystical uh, metaphor uh, or you let the Bible speak for itself and it's clearly a seven-year period uh, but that t uh, constitutes a, a large portion of this chart so again it's not drawn to scale but if you look uh, at the end of the seven years you notice you have three and a half years of protection that's for Israel remember the seven-year tribulation is uh, for Israel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Israel. It's, uh, you know, the prophecy was given in Daniel and it's for this 490 year plan was given for his people and his holy city. It's, it's for Israel. So uh, we read in scripture that the first half of the tribulation will be relative peace for Israel. It won't be peace on the earth. There'll be all kinds of judgments and uh, cataclysmic events taking place. But as it relates to the Antichrist regime, he's not going to turn on the nation of Israel until the midpoint and the abomination of desolation. After the midpoint, after the abomination of desolation, then we see three and a half years of persecution. We're actually going to look at that, coincidentally, a passage on that this morning. So that's what we mean by protection and persecution, not globally or for everyone on earth, but as it relates to Israel. This is, in fact, uh, the time of Israel's trouble. But if you look at the end of that seven-year period, you see the second coming and the Battle of Armageddon. So that is what begins, uh, you know, sort of the preparatory steps for the kingdom. We know from Daniel chapter 12 that there's a 75-day interval between when Christ comes back and the official commencement of the thousand-year millennium. Uh, but essentially Christ's return is to inaugurate the long-awaited earthly kingdom. Uh, one of the most uh, clear prophecies in all of Scripture is that Christ is going to reign on earth. And we find out in the book of Revelation that that reign is a thousand years on this present earth. It will continue in perpetuity in the new heavens and the new earth, but we call the first thousand years of it the millennium. So after the millennium, so now we're at that midpoint over here where it says messianic kingdom and then You've got a black line there separating the kingdom on this earth from the kingdom that will continue for eternity on the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we are in our discussion, is that little dividing line. What has to take place at the end of the millennium prior to the destruction of the old earth and old heavens and the reestablishment of uh, God's creation in sinless perfection? So with that sort of context and backdrop, Let's go to where we left off last week, and that is the prelude to uh, the eternal state. And we're focusing on four things that have to happen uh, prior to the start of the eternal state. Uh, one of these, which we began discussing last week, is the final judgment of Satan and demons. Remember, in the eternal state, 
there is no more sin, there is no more devil, it's all done. No more demons, they're all cast into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, then we see the final judgment of the old heaven and old earth. We're going to talk about that this morning. Then, of course, the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers are judged. And then number four there is a little tricky because the Bible doesn't specifically tell us when this happens. But theologically, we know quite clearly that all believers in the eternal state have to be in their glorified body. There's no flesh and blood because there's no you know, deterioration. There's no... Uh, you know, night and day, it's time shall be no more. So we know, and we know this from the passage I quoted a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 15, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So we also know that the, during the millennium, as we just finished several weeks talking about, there will be physical people born uh, during that thousand year. So the question then becomes, how do those people born in their mortal bodies uh, through normal means of conception, how do they get their, their uh, glorified bodies? And we can only assume, and it's a pretty solid assumption, uh, that they will be translated, uh, since they don't die uh, at the end of the thousand years or sometime during it, uh, in order to get into the eternal state. So does that make sense? We'll come back to that, but just want that's what we mean by translation. So, uh, for example, at the rapture, we go back here. So the rapture is over here on the far left, just at the end of the church age. Um, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the rapture will affect two kinds of believers. Those believers in the church age that have already died and those believers that are still alive. Those believers that have already died when the rapture happens, they, their soul is already in heaven. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that to be absent from this body to be present with the Lord. So at death, every believer goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. And that's true in every age, but in the church age, that's uh, what we're talking about with the rapture. Their physical body uh, may go to the grave or go to be cremated or be lost at sea or burned up or whatever, but uh, their, our soul goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. So if you have a loved one who knew the Lord and has died, you can rest on the promises of Scripture that they're with the Lord right now. Um, but as we've been talking about, at the rapture, uh, they, you know, in order to in inherit the eternal state, they have to have a glorified body. So at the rapture, the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning their physical bodies. It will be reconstituted into a glorified body, reunited with their soul. And then those of us who haven't died, like if the rapture were to happen this morning, uh, you know, and, and, and everybody in here is alive and you're a believer, you'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and in that moment you'll be translated. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that in the sense of a change. It says we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed, 1 Corinthians 15. So, uh, so that's translation. It's basically a, a different way to get to the same place of a glorified body. For some, it means resurrecting your old body and glorifying it. For others, it means translating you instantly without having to die into that glorified body. So that's the rapture. The same thing is going to have to happen for believers in the millennium or to enter uh, you know, the eternal state after the millennium. So we'll come back to that and, and talk about that in a moment. So last week, we looked at Satan's prior judgments throughout history. God has judged Satan, and we looked at uh, the ultimate final judgment was at the cross when Jesus said, it is finished, John 19.30. Of course, his judgment was, 
predicted all the way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God tells the serpent, Satan, that one day the seed of the woman will crush your head. So think about it. We know that the fall of man happened shortly after creation, probably within days. And so for 6,000 years now, Satan has been living with the knowledge that God told him, you're, you're done for. You know, you're going to lose this battle. Now, he doesn't believe it, but he's known it all along, and he knows it because he knows Scripture as well. But that was the, the prediction of Satan's demise. Uh, it was accomplished ultimately when Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave at Calvary. And then we saw a preliminary judgment of Satan at the second coming. So for this last thousand years uh, of, let's put it up, this chart, the, the thousand year millennium, which is on this present earth, Satan hasn't been utterly destroyed. He hasn't received his final judgment, but he's been in prison and he's been confined for that thousand years. And we're going to talk about why that is uh, this morning. Uh, but that was just temporary. And, and then, um, during the, uh, uh, these are kind of out of order here. This, I should have talked about the third bullet point here second. But during the second half of the tribulation, so again, the three and a half years when, when Satan turns on Israel and just all hell breaks loose for the nation of Israel, uh, Satan is going to be uh, confined to the earth so that uh, he can you know, no longer come and go from heaven. We know from Scripture that right now Satan can come and go from heaven to earth. Remember the story of Job when, God, when Satan says, you know, have you considered my uh, servant Job? Or, or he and God had that conversation about Job. So, but uh, once we get toward the very end of the, this age, prior to when Christ returns, uh, he, Satan will be confined to the earth. And he and his demons are going to ratchet it up and do everything they can to get ready for Armageddon and try to destroy Christ uh, in, in their battle. But, of course, they won't uh, win. So now, when we talked about all that last week, so now let's move to the very end of the millennium. After that thousand years when Christ is reigning on the throne of David in, in the rebuilt temple in uh, Jerusalem. And let's talk about this final rebellion. So if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 20, we'll read, we read the first six verses last week, but let's read verses 7 through 10. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, let's stop at verse 8 for a second and, and explain what he's talking about there. So, by the time the thousand years is over, this earth will have a greater population than at any other time in, in human history. So right now, we have, what, 7.5 billion people, give or take, that's what they say. I'm not sure who counted, but that's what they say. Um, of course, after the rapture, a certain percentage of those are going to be gone. During the tribulation, we see multiple judgments that result in you know, a quarter of the earth's population dying, a third of the earth's population dying, that kind of thing. Plus, we see just the natural deaths and so forth. So when the millennium starts, when Christ comes back, 
the number of believers that are alive on the earth that survived the tribulation, not church age believers, we're already in heaven, but earthly believers during the tribulation is very small because most believers will be martyred. Revelation makes that clear. Uh, of course, unbelievers at the second coming are cast into the everlasting fire. So there's just a small number of people that are on the earth alive in their mortal bodies at the beginning of the millennium. And, and, but by the end of the millennium, that's, it's going to grow a huge number of population. Uh, and Jesus talks about this in the parables of the kingdom, parables about the kingdom, Matthew 13. Um, and uh, he talks about it in the sense of the uh, parable of the mustard seed. It's going to start small, but it's going to grow into this massive plant, so to speak. So uh, why is that? Well, as we talked about in our look at the millennium, during Christ's reign on earth, he's reigning with a rod of iron in perfect justice. It's perfect righteousness. It's perfect peace. There will be no accidental death. There will be no injustices or inequities. So people are going to live longer. You know, we talked about that. Isaiah said during that kingdom age on this earth, uh, a child will, a person will die at the age of 100. If they die at the age of 100, they'll be considered a child, right? So again, the Bible is coming full circle back to the way it was before the depravity of man and the curse of sin, you know, had so many thousands of years to take root. That's the reason in the early days of creation, man lived to be eight, nine hundred years old. And the same thing will be true once again in the kingdom. So by the end of the thousand years, there's going to be a massive number of people on the earth. And Revelation 20 verse 8 says, uh, whose number is as the sand of the sea. It's a lot of people. Another thing that I want to point out here is when he says, which are in the four corners of the earth. And then he also mentions Gog and Magog. Gog is the leader of Russia. Magog is the land of Russia, what we now call Russia. And uh, that, that's just a geographic reference. And from going all the way back into ancient times, that geographic region has always been an, an enemy, uh, uh, an antagonist to God's holy land, God's holy nation, Israel. And so... We need to be careful not to confuse Gog and Magog and think that it's some kind of a technical term for a battle because as we talked about previously in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog are also mentioned, the, land, the, the, leader, of Gog, the leader Gog of the land of Magog, uh, and that's a different time. That, that's what happens prior, in my view, prior to the tribulation, right? So I believe that that battle, the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, that also involves Gog, is going to take place after the rapture, but prior to uh, the start of the tribulation. Uh, so in this little uh, preparation of unknown length time. Now, I can't prove that exegetically, but I think it makes the most sense. There are other views on it. Some people say that it takes place during the tribulation. I, when we covered that some time ago, I gave... Um, the reasons why I don't think that fits the biblical record. In my book, What Lies Ahead, I have a chapter on Gog and Magog and explain why I, I think the best evidence points to after the rapture but prior to the start of Daniel's 70th week. But in any event, that Gog and Magog battle is not the same battle that we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 20. Same geographic region involved, but not the same exact battle because this battle clearly happens after the thousand years. Remember what verse 7 said. When the thousand years have expired. And then it talks about Gog and Magog. 
So that's you know separated by more than a thousand years from the one that's talked about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, let me see if there was anything else I wanted to point out. So when the thousand years expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Remember, he's put in prison. We talked about that last week um, during the thousand years. Notice he will go out to deceive the nations. Um, so that's what Satan's MO has always been. Uh, you've heard me uh, talk about that a lot, uh, that going all the way back to the garden. Satan's MO is deception. Uh, that deception is getting worse and worse. Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy 3.13, that deception will get worse and worse. It's going to reach its greatest heights during the tribulation. And that's the reason that Jesus, referring to this seven-year period of the tribulation, cautions the future nation of Israel that will be alive then to be not deceived. Repeatedly in the, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, he says, be not deceived. Be careful that no one deceive you. Watch out, you know. Many will be deceived. So it's going to reach unprecedented heights then. And then it will cool off during the thousand years. There will still be people that reject the gospel, refuse to receive the free gift of eternal life by faith. Uh, but Satan's deception will be uh, squelched a little bit and, uh, and because he's in prison. When he's released, man, he's going to go right back to what he did. Old habits die hard, and that is trying to deceive uh, the nations. And I believe... Uh, in the lead-up to uh, this final battle with Gog and Magog at the end of the thousand years, when Satan is released, there'll be a brief period where Satan is you know, trying his best to harness together as many unbelievers on the earth as possible for this final battle. Uh, and, and if you picture it like you know, in, in the old days in gym class when you were you know, picking teams for dodgeball, and you have the two captains, and then everybody else is out there, and then I'll take this Sally, and I'll take Billy, and I'll take Mary, and whatever. Satan, I think, is going to have all the unbelievers in his mind, and he's going to be trying to get as many of them as he can. And I think in that waning moment, we will see another harvest of souls, because there will be people who up to that point maybe haven't believed the gospel, but in that final you know, moments before the, the end of the millennium, will... You know, avoid the deception and get saved. But the vast majority will not. They will firmly reject the gospel, sort of sign up, for lack of a better word, with Satan. And then, and then the teams are set. And then you see this final battle. Well, what happens at that final battle? Let's pick it up in verse 9, Revelation 20, verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So what city is that? Jerusalem, where Christ has been reigning for a thousand years. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So it would be pretty disappointing for, you know, Satan at that moment, right? It's kind of like those big, you know, famous uh, boxing match, heavyweight championship bouts, you know, boxing matches where you get all this hype and people pay $99.99 to, to watch it on HBO. I don't know if they do that anymore, but back in the day, HBO always carried the big boxing matches and you had to pay for pay-per-view. And man, you invite all your friends over and you pop some popcorn and man, this is going to be the, the fight of the century and you're all excited and ready and the bell goes off, the fighters come out, the first punch that's thrown, the guy's knocked out and it's over. And you're thinking, I paid $100 for a two seconds of entertainment? You know, That's kind of what it's going to be like at the end of the millennium. Just like that, as Satan gathers his team, comes against the city of Jerusalem, fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. So this battle will not be like the battle of Armageddon, 
although the Battle of Armageddon's not going to necessarily be that prolonged, but this is instantaneously over. And notice what we read in verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Now, remind me who the beast and the false prophet are? Antichrist and, and the false prophet, right, yeah. The, 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 the second in command, kind of his vice president, right? Uh, no pun intended. But anyway, uh, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet. So the, in the book of Revelation, the beast is the name for the Antichrist. So and notice it says where they are. Now when did they, the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist and the false prophet, get cast into the lake of fire? A thousand years earlier, Right? at the second coming. Put my chart back up here so we can have it for reference. So at the end of the tribulation, at the Battle of Armageddon, that's when the Antichrist and the false prophet get cast in the lake of fire. Now we're fast-forwarding a thousand years in time. The devil gets cast there, and they're still there being tormented day and night forever. Now the reason that's very significant is because there are those who, who falsely try to teach today that the uh, ultimate end for unbelievers is annihilation, called annihilationism. The Bible quite plainly does not teach that. That is a false heretical teaching. If, the, if people are annihilated, then how do you explain these two human beings that are being tormented for a thousand years, right? Uh, they, they didn't, when they died, they didn't cease to exist. They went into the lake of fire where they were tormented, and a thousand years later, they're still there, and they're still there today. Yeah? So, just to be clear, um, you're talking about three different battles here, the, the Gog and Magog, the Ezekiel, the Gog and Magog later, and then Armageddon. Correct. The third one. Yeah, so the question is, just to be clear, we've been referencing three different battles, and the answer is yes. So we've got the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, which involves Gog and Magog. Gog is the land, Magog is the leader. I mean, Gog is the leader, Magog is the land. That battle, that one, I believe, it's, un it's somewhat unclear. I, in my book, I give eight views on when that battle takes place. So there are a lot of views out there. Um, most of them can be dismissed out of hand. But there's two or three that good you know, dispensational scholars you know, propose, um, but uh, I believe it takes place prior to the start of the tribulation. That's that. That's number one. Then we've talked about the Battle of Armageddon, totally separate battle. That's what takes place at the end of the tribulation, and that involves the Antichrist and his armies, and Satan and his demons, and the the climax of that seven-year period. By the way, it's it's kind of interesting to me that the Antichrist, uh, you know, gets a lot of attention. In uh, these days, in fact, some people even write books with the name Antichrist in the title, but and, and, and it gets a lot of attention in Scripture. But historically, it's actually only—he's only on the scene for seven years, but he does a lot of damage in seven years. Okay, so it's a key, pivotal seven-year period. Um, a lot of well-well uh, well-intentioned and some not so well-intentioned Bible teachers dismiss that seven years. That's not literal, or it already happened back in the first century, and all. And none of it makes any sense. It gets a lot of airtime in Scripture. And again, it's mentioned even down to the number of days, right? 1,260 days and so forth. Remember, a Jewish year is 360 days. So uh, it's a key 
sort of climax to God's plan of the ages. It, it's the end cap to that 490-year plan. Daniel prayed uh, at the end of uh, the 70 years of captivity that God had prophesied through Jeremiah. And he said, okay, God, now what? What comes next? God said, I'll tell you what comes next. 490 years are now what's prophesied. I told you about 70 years. This is 70 times 7. 70 weeks, a seven-year period. 70 times 7, 490 years. And that this is what's prophesied for your people. And then the end will come. Uh, 483 of them have already happened. Started with the decree of Artaxerxes, March 15, 444 B.C., and ended with the coming of Christ uh, in the first century. But the, then, then the Daniel's prophecy presses pause. That's not something that we enforce on the text. The text itself clearly says after the 483rd year, a couple of things are going to happen. Namely, the Messiah is going to be cut off and the temple is going to be destroyed. Both of those things happened after Christ rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Uh, his death happened, what, three or four days later, five days later. The temple was destroyed a few decades later in 70 AD. And then Daniel says at some point in the future, or God told Daniel at some point in the future, this man is going to arise, whom we now, we now know as the Antichrist by comparing Scripture with Scripture. He's going to start the clock ticking on that final seven years of the 490 years when he signs the peace treaty. And Jesus talks about it. The book of Revelation talks about it. Uh, Paul talks about the Antichrist repeatedly. So it's it just interesting to me that this seven-year period is so pivotal, uh, but yet when in the grand scheme of time, it doesn't take up much time, right? Um, the church age so far is twice as long as the millennium, and the millennium is exponentially longer than the seven-year tribulation. But, you know, God is not confined by time he's not obligated to to weight things based on how long they happen you know sometimes when you're facing a terrible experience you know a second can seem like an eternity right and at the same time when you're bored to death you know it, it can it, it's, it, time stands still right so uh so that's the second battle paul is the battle of armageddon at the end of the tribulation and the third battle we've talked about which really isn't much of a battle and that's what we're talking about here this morning is the one that takes place at the end of the millennium. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 20. So back to the text. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Verse 10, Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Greek, that means... They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I mean, there's just no way around it unless you completely do gymnastics with the text and bring your theology to the text. So with all due respect to those who struggle with the eternal torment of the unredeemed, you know, either you believe the Bible or you don't. I'm a pretty simple guy. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Now, let's talk for a moment uh, about the sort of the implications of that. Because in our humanness, we find it difficult to understand, even though we shouldn't, and I'm going to explain why in a second, but we find it difficult to understand how God, who is merciful and loving and gracious and kind and all those things, can allow someone to spend eternity in hell, and not just in hell separated from God, but in torment. Right? Um, well, and I, I detail this theologically in, in, in 
some length in my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell. Um, the reason for that is God doesn't send anybody to hell. God created mankind in His image with free will. He warned us about the consequences of eating the forbidden fruit. And He plainly said, if you eat this fruit, you're going to die. But He gave us free will. I mean, the, the, the alternative of free will is we're just a bunch of, you know, androids or automatons or some you know, robots that have no choices. So God loves us. He created us in His image. That means we have free will. We chose to rebel against God. And in that moment, God, either He's a liar or He's God. Uh, and I think He's God. And so that's the reason we died. And we face eternal punishment, eternal consequence of sin. But God is also gracious. And so He took the added step of you know, providing a remedy for the predicament we got ourselves from. God could have certainly, and he would have been completely just, to just say, well, I warned you. Tough talk, you know. <laughs> you know, hell awaits. Uh, he had under no obligation to do anything else. But the Bible, in his self-revelation to us, tells us that he took the extraordinary step of coming out of the realm of eternity, putting on human flesh, paying the penalty for our sin, a penalty he didn't owe, you know, he paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And he paid our price. And then he says, okay, I've solved your problem, and I'm making it available to whosoever will may come. Whoever wants to can come drink of the water of life freely, the book of Revelation tells us. And, but he doesn't force it on us. Just as he didn't force us to disobey, he doesn't force us to believe. It's a free gift. Like all gifts, it has to be freely offered, not forced, and freely received. Right, So if anybody, end, like the beast and the false prophet, ends up in eternal torment, they have nobody to blame but themselves. Anybody can come and say, I trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for my sins. Simple. Jesus says it repeatedly. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. John six forty seven. So, in fact, the passage we looked at uh, on Wednesday night in, in uh, John 3 states it, again, unambiguously. He says in John 3, um, 18, He who believes in Him is not condemned. This is Jesus speaking. He, or start out in verse 17, even more relevant to what we're talking about. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. God's not sending anybody to hell. But that the world through Him might be saved, might be delivered from Him. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So even though when we read passages like Revelation 20 that talk about the beast and the false prophet, and let's not forget who they are, they're human beings. Okay, these are not angels or demons. or These are human beings that God, in God's plan of the ages, take on a key role. I believe the Antichrist will be indwelt by Satan based on Second. Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul says he's, his working will be according to the power of Satan. But they're, hu they're human beings, and so they, like all human beings who don't believe the gospel, are condemned to a place of eternal torment day and night forever and ever. Um, so uh, Jesus uh, talks in Matthew 25, you see on the screen there, Matthew 25, 41, that at the second coming, this is prior to the millennium, but it's the same in eventuality, 
that all unbelievers at that point who rejected the free gift throughout the seven-year tribulation will be cast into the, the uh, lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, it's this, there's, a, there's an eternal consequence for sin. But nobody has to face it. It's a free gift. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't be good enough. It's a free gift. How do you receive that gift? Well, more than 160 times, the New Testament tells us we receive it by faith. Faith is the mechanism for receiving that free gift. When faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal life every time, and nothing can change that. So uh, that's the final rebellion that is crushed at the end of uh, the millennium. And um, Satan at that point shall be no more. I mean, he's, he's in the everlasting lake of fire uh, where he's tormented day and night forever and ever. So we'll, that's a good stopping point. Next week we're going to talk about why the millennium. So what, why do we have this thousand-year period prior to the eternal state? Because remember, the kingdom, which is what I'm trying to distinguish in, well, let's look at this one, in the purple over here on the far right, is eternal. All the passages that speak of the coming of Messiah talk about he shall reign forever and ever. He shall take the phone of his throne of his father David forever. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. So we know the kingdom is eternal. But why does God in his plan of the ages distinguish between the first thousand years on this earth, old earth and then the eternal kingdom? We're going to talk about that next week. But we got about five minutes or four minutes left. Uh, any comments or questions about anything that we've talked about this morning? Yeah. This is kind of a generic question, but um, when in the Bible did Satan, was he always referred to as the devil? Or was that... Yeah, so the question is, when was he referred to as the devil? Well, remember, there are several names that refer to him. In the book of Genesis, he's the serpent. You don't find the word devil or Satan ever mentioned in Genesis. Uh, in Revelation, uh, chapter 12, so at the opposite end, he says that great, this is chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon was cast out, so that's another name, dragon, uh, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Okay. So it kind of sums them all up. Dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. Um, he's also called the deceiver. He's called the accuser. He's called uh, a number of, of different things. L Lucifer, and that's, you know, I believe that refers to Satan, Isaiah 14. But some scholars contextually point out that really in context it's not, there's nothing that explicitly connects him to Satan, but there's no question that, for you know, the last 2,800 years or so, Isaiah was written, what, 700 years before Christ? So the last 2,700 years, people have understood that to be Satan, and it sure is at the very least an allusion to Satan. But yeah, Lucifer, Satan, devil, serpent, dragon, all those things. Someone else, yeah. Uh, I think Paul was first, and we'll go back here. Welcome back, by the way. Um, back to our glorified bodies. Um, we'll be recognizable at that point? Yes. This may be kind of a silly question, but what are we going to look like? Am I going to be a teenager in my 20s? Am I going to look like so, now? The question is... In our glorified bodies, will we be recognizable? And I'm always trying to repeat the questions for people that are watching the video. Uh, and secondly, what will we look like? I think you're going to be just as good looking then as you are now, Paul. So, 
Mirror, mirror. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll just let you interpret that however you want. But uh, no, the key thing is, and you said it first, and I don't want to skip over to make light of it, we will be recognizable. So sometimes people have the mistaken impression that when we die, we turn into angels or something. Well, that's, that's completely false. Uh, we are... You know, that's a category confusion. We are human beings created in the image of God, the highest pinnacle of creation. Angels are another created class of being. They're, we, we, they're never the two shall meet. We, they're completely different. We may as well say we're going to turn into a frog or something, right? So we're human. And as a human, we have identity. So I'm JB. Uh, you're Paul. That's Gary. That's Nancy, right? Uh, that doesn't change. Uh, just like... In, in the eternal state, we don't, we're not married. There's no marriage. Marriage is an earthly, distinct, uh, earthly institution. I talked about this last week. Um, that's the reason, historically, when you say your wedding vows, you say, till death do us part. Because after death, marriage is no more. It's an earthly institution. Back when I used to do a lot of weddings in my early days of pastoral ministry, I would, young couples would come in and all starry-eyed and in love, and they, they'd want to write their own vows, and they'd always inevitably want to say, well, you're my soulmate. I would point out, no, he's not your soulmate. He's your earthly mate. When you die, you're not married anymore. Okay, so now that does that mean that in the eternal state, you and Nancy won't know each other or won't have a special? Of course you will, and so will Wendy and I and anybody you've spent time with. We just won't be married in that sense because that's an earthly institution. But we will always be who we are. You we will know each other, all of that. What will we look like? I mean. I think the only thing we can conceive of is bodies as we think of them on earth. Uh, we have some indication or taste of it, if you will, with Christ's resurrection. And clearly he interacted for 40 days prior to the ascension and everybody recognized him and didn't say, oh, what's that glowing light? You know, they, they, they understood who he was. So that indicates probably that there's some similarities to the earthly human form but we want to be careful about drawing that analogy too strictly because remember although jesus christ is fully human he's also fully god so there's obviously a difference there but whatever we're going to look like it'll be perfect and all of the limitations and injuries and all of those things to our earthly bodies through the years will be no more because that stays behind ashes to ashes dust to dust Okay, yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. Correct. Okay, so, so let me repeat the question real quick and then I'll let you finish. Uh, question is when do Old Testament saints get their resurrected bodies? Daniel 12, Isaiah 26. Both make it clear that when the Messiah, when the promised Messiah finally comes in fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies going all the way back to uh, Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic promise, when that happens, that's when the Old Testament believers are resurrected and receive their glorified bodies. Correct. They're in, they're serving as well. They're, you know, uh, Jesus, the question is, uh, what are the Old Testament saints in their glorified bodies doing during the millennium? So they are uh, presiding over the sacrifices and 
uh, helping serve around the temple ministry. Definitely two distinct roles between the church and the Old Testament saints. Uh, Jesus said that in the kingdom, uh, people will come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banqueting table. So we know they're going to be involved and so forth. Um, but that's a good question. But as far as when they get their glorified bodies, that happens at the second coming, for sure. Okay, last question. Yep. Well, Jesus said in, the question is, is it true that we receive a new name? Jesus said in the letters to the churches, Revelation 2 and 3, that one of the blessings of overcomers, uh, which I believe overcomers there is, means all believers, uh, some people take that as rewards, that certain acts of service will be re rewarded, and that's certainly true. The Bible is very clear, teaches the doctrine of rewards on the beam of judgment. But based on John's use of the word overcomer in his first epistle, chapter 5, I think it's clear that overcomers refers to all believers. So I take all of the letters to the churches as kind of giving blessings to come for the believers, one of which is a name that's known only to you and the Lord. So yes. All right, uh, let's take a break. Um, for those of you here, we will come back together at 10 o'clock, give or take, uh, whenever I can get your attention. Uh, and uh, start our worship service. For those of you live streaming, just stand by. We will pick up the live stream again roughly 1030 or so.